We're going to begin with the first chapter, Isaiah chapter 34. It says, come near you nations to hear and heed you people. Let the earth hear and all that is in it, the world and all things that come forth from it. For the indignation of the Lord is against all nations and his fury against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. He has given them over to the slaughter. Also, their slain shall be thrown out. Their stench shall rise from their corpses and the mountains shall be melted with their blood. All the hosts of heaven shall be dissolved. And the heavens shall be rolled up like a scroll. All the host shall fall down as the leaf falls from the vine, as the fruit falling from a fig tree. For my sword shall be bathed in heaven. Indeed, it shall come down on Edom and on the people of my curse for judgment. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is made overflowing with fatness, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. The wild oxen shall come down with them and the young bulls with the mighty bulls. Their land shall be soaked with blood and their dust saturated with fatness. For it is the day of the Lord's vengeance, the year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Its stream shall be turned into pitch and its dust into brimstone. Its land shall become burning pitch. It shall not be quenched night or day. Its smoke shall ascend forever from generation to generation. It shall lie waste. No one shall pass through it forever and ever. But the pelican and the porcupine shall possess it. Also, the owl and the raven shall dwell in it and he shall stretch out over it the line of confusion and the stones of emptiness. They shall call its nobles to the kingdom, but none shall be there and all its princes shall be nothing. And thorns shall come up in its palaces, nettles and brambles in its fortresses. It shall be a habitation of jackals. A courtyard for ostriches and the wild beasts of the desert shall also meet with the jackals and the wild goat shall bleat to its companion. Also, the night creature shall rest there and find for herself a place of rest there. The arrow snake shall make her nest and lay eggs and hatch and gather them under the shadow. There also shall be shall the hawks be gathered every one with her mate search From the book of the Lord and read not one of these shall fail, not one shall lack her mate for my mouth has commanded it and his spirit has gathered them. He has cast the lot for them and his hand has divided it among them with a measuring line. They shall possess it forever from generation to generation. They shall dwell in it. In this chapter and in the next chapter. Isaiah is going to give you a sneak peek at what's been called the final battle or the battle of Armageddon and the end of the age. Isaiah describes God's punishment for the nations that have rebelled against him. And then in the next chapter, in chapter 35, it's going to be a description of the perfect age to come when Israel is restored, when Messiah rules and when Messiah reigns in a future millennium. Now, once again, Isaiah ends this section with both a warning and a promise. 
Isaiah warns of a final judgment on the nations that have resisted and rebelled against God, that have persecuted the righteous, that have made war against the saints. And so Isaiah reminds his readers of this glorious certainty, the future kingdom of Messiah. Now, there are several ways to look at almost anything. I don't know what kind of a person you are. If you're the kind of person who likes looking through a microscope so that you can see the details. Or if you're the kind of person who likes a telescope, you like to have the great big picture of what's going to go on. Here, it's the big picture. I don't know if you were in school, if you ever used a thing called Cliff's Notes. Do you know what Cliff's Notes are? They're a summary of literature. Um, when you're in school and you don't have time to read Romeo and Juliet, if you don't have time to read Dostoevsky, if you don't have time to read War and Peace, if you don't have time to read all of this stuff, you get Cliff's Notes and they give you an outline and they give you the gist of what's happening in a particular story. Now, my college professors believe that it was cheating if you used Cliff's Notes. But Isaiah, in these two chapters, is going to give a broad, sweeping image of God's punishment and God's judgment on the nations in verses 1 through 4. Then he's going to specifically focus on one nation, Edom, in verses 5 through 17. And the sweeping summation isn't intended to be a substitute for a careful study of this war or this battle called Armageddon, or this thing called the Millennial Kingdom. But this is going to serve as an introduction, a way of pointing us to God's future and God's plan. If you've noticed something about Isaiah, Isaiah is one of those kind of prophets who goes, let's get to the end, get to the end, just tell me how it's going to end. Have you ever been reading a book and you want to sneak to the end because you want to see how it all ends? Or you buy a DVD and... For whatever reason, you just decide, I'm not going to watch the movie, and you fast forward it right to the end. That's what Isaiah is doing. He's fast forwarding right to the end. And so it begins with a warning to the whole world. So what I'm calling this is cliff notes or cliff's notes for the final battle and the future age. In verses 1 and 2, look what it says. Come near, you nations. To hear and heed you people, let the earth hear and all that is in it, the world and all things that come forth from it. For the indignation of the Lord is against all nations and his fury is against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. He's speaking in the prophetic past tense as if it is already an accomplished fact. And then it says he has given them over to slaughter. The passage begins with a, a warning and an invitation for all the nations to draw close. We are conditioned from an, a very early age to heed warnings from a very small child. And if you can remember being a very small child, some of you can maybe hear your mother or your father or your grandmother, or your grandfather saying, don't touch that. I'm warning you. And some of you heeded the warning and some of you did not. And depending on what kind of a parent you had or the kind of a grandparent you had, if you were foolish enough not to heed the warning, you had to pay the consequence. 
I don't know what kind of a life you lived, but it seems I had to pay the consequence a lot. Warning. You see the sign electrical shock warning. Step down. Um, Have you gone to the airport? Walkway is coming to an end. Please note walkway is coming to an end or you get into that dumb train, you know, that goes, please close the door. You are blocking the door. Or you go to uh, DSW, the shoe place for ladies. Warning, women shopping for shoes. We have smoke alarms, car alarms, house alarms, distress signals, warning lights. Anyone who's ever traveled across country, you see signs, dangerous roads up ahead, rock slides, wild animals, a um, hundred miles till you get food, gas or lodging. And when you see these signs, you have this mixed feeling, depending on if you have to go to the bathroom or not. And you see the next rest stop is 150 miles and you just you get a little bit nervous. What is happening is God is issuing a warning for all the nations on the earth. It says the indignation of the Lord is near. Now, remember what you've already seen in the book of Isaiah. The armies of the Assyria are heading down towards Judah and Jerusalem. Isaiah is fast forwarding to a time when all of the pain and all of the pressure and all of the persecution is coming to a to a head. When it says for the indignation of the Lord is against all nations, it means that God is going to provoke a judgment that's going to result in the punishment of all of the nations that have rebelled against him and opposed him. Jeremiah 30 calls this the time of Jacob's sorrow. Or the time of Jacob's trouble. The time of sorrow and trouble is also a time of trouble for the entire world. The time of Jacob's sorrow is a time of preparation. And it's a time of judgment. In the Bible, it's called the time of the tribulation. And in, during the time of the tribulation, there seems to be a series of battles that are described. And one of those battles is called Armageddon. And the reason why it's a time of preparation and it's a time of judgment, it's a time of cleansing and it's a time of purging. Because it's also a time when the king is going to return. And we see a tiny picture of that that's given in the New Testament with the ministry of John the Baptist. Remember in John's gospel when the religious leaders come and they say, who are you and what are you doing? Who do you say that you are? And he says, I'm the voice like Isaiah saying, prepare the way of the Lord. And Isaiah is prophesying that the preparation of the kingdom is at hand. A day of judgment is coming against this sinful, corrupt and wicked world. The judgment is a direct result of sin and rebellion and wickedness and ungodliness and unrighteousness. And God's wrath is going to be poured out against the whole earth. And the description that Isaiah gives is short and it's graphic and it's rated R.I. For righteous indignation. Today, Mike Montgomery was showing me something on the computer of a of a person who's going to be visiting um, our town in the not too distant future. His name is Rob Bell. And it says the gods aren't angry. And here's what it says. 
Mars Hill Bible Church pastor Rob Bell brings his speaking tour, The Gods Aren't Angry, to DeVoe Performance Hall on December 2nd. On this tour, Rob Bell will be speaking about how humans invented religion to make sense of life. It's an exploration into where we got the idea of a being called God. Bell will touch on ideas based on anthropology, history, and deconstruction, and it talks about where he lives and all this other junk. And then it says, proceeds from the tour are going to be given to such and such a project. And and basically, he says he's going to be speaking how God, how people invented religion and how God isn't angry. But guess what? God is angry with sin every day. God is angry when people resist him and rebel against him. God is angry when people abuse his children when people are persecuted. God is angry when people take the Sudanese and and crucify them. He is angry when when whole people groups are burned at the stake or buried alive. It does make God angry. And here you're going to see scenes of charred, dead corpses, rotting flesh with fat oozing from their dead carcasses. That's pretty graphic. In verse 3 it says, Also their slain shall be thrown out, their stench shall rise from their corpses, and the mountains shall be melted with their blood. The idea is, there's so many dead people, also their slain shall be thrown out. There are so many dead people that there aren't enough live people to bury the dead. And the odor of corruption is unbearable. And blood soaks the ground so much so that the runoff from the blood starts to erode the very mountains on which the people lie dead. Is that hyperbole? Maybe. But even if it is hyperbole, it's talking about something very, very bad. In verse four, it says, all the, the hosts of heaven shall be dissolved and the heaven shall be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall down as the leaf falls from the vine and as fruit falling from a fig tree. This day of catastrophe, this day of, of judgment is going to include celestial events. And the picture is either of the end of the universe as we know it, or the end of heaven and earth, which makes way for a new heaven or a new earth. Or it may mean the rotation of the planet itself. If you can imagine, if you can do a thought experiment in your mind for just a moment, you know that the earth is at a slight tilt. Imagine if the earth on its rotation where the South Pole becomes the North Pole and the North Pole becomes the South Pole. You, as a kid, do you remember on being on a merry-go-round and you see the, the world spinning around you? Imagine you're on the globe and all of a sudden the globe shifts. What is the sky going to look like? It's going to look like the sky is falling. As a matter of fact, the events of this celestial circumstances are described in Joel chapter 2, verse 10, in Zechariah chapter 14, in Matthew chapter 24, verse 29. It says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon won't give its light, the stars will fall from the heaven, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. 
In Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 and 14, it says, I looked when he opened the sixth seal and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair. The moon became like blood. The stars from the heavens fell to the earth as a fig tree drops late figs when shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it's rolled up. Every mountain, every island was moved out of its place. So we're talking about something, a catastrophe of unparalleled proportions. As a matter of fact, again, like I said, this is a description of the Battle of Armageddon. Now, this this battle seems important enough that it is written about by John the Apostle in the book of Revelation, by Isaiah the prophet here in chapter 34, by Joel, by Zechariah, and by John. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, it says, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and his head has many crowns. He has a name written on it that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword and with it that he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he has a robe on his thigh and a name written that says King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried with a loud voice saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, those who sit on them, the flesh of all people people, free and slave, small and great. I saw the beast, the king of the earth, their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. The beast was captured. Then the false prophet who worked the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These were cast into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone and the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeded out of the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all of the birds ate until they were stuffed. It's like an all you can eat wickedness buffet. In Isaiah 63, verses 3 and 4, I have trodden the wine press alone, and from the peoples no one was with me, for I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled on my garment. I have stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. In Zechariah 14:2, For I will gather the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city will be taken. The houses rifled. The women ravished. Half the city will go into captivity. But the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. Psalm 2, verse 1. 
Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast them away. Their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. God's not angry. What would what would leave you with that impression? Can you seriously listen to what I just said? And come to the conclusion that God's okay. That the nations reject him. God's okay. With the people who persecute his people, God's okay. With people who molest. Persecute. And then kill. His people. If you come to that conclusion, you've come to the false conclusion, a wrong conclusion. All of those things that I've just quoted to you are a prophetic picture of a future event in which the nations of the world gather together and literally try to keep Jesus Christ from returning to the planet Earth. They come from the north, they come from the south, they come from the east, they come from the west with the Antichrist at the head of the army. And they're smart enough to know that Jesus has already indicated where he will return. Remember Acts chapter 2? He leaves from a place. Where, what's the city that he leaves from? Jerusalem. From the Mount of Olives. Remember the angel of the Lord says, that same Jesus who you saw leave in like manner, he will He's going to return. So the Antichrist is going to try and cut him off at the pass. And when the Antichrist tries to head him off at the pass, it is this battle called Armageddon. Franklin Logsdon writes, a former president of the Norwegian Academy of Sciences, helped by historians from Britain and Egypt and Germany and India, using an electronic computer, found that since 3600 B.C., the world has known 292 years of peace. In this period of more than 55 centuries, there have been 14,531 wars, large and small, in which more than 3.6 billion people have been killed. Since 650 B.C., there have been 1,656 arms races, all except 16 ending in war. And those 16 ended in an economic collapse for the countries concerned, unquote. But the coming of Armageddon will be by far the biggest and the boldest and the bloodiest and the most brazen and the most blasphemous war that has ever been fought. There are those scholars who will differentiate between Armageddon and the invasion that's talked about in Ezekiel 38 and 39, the Magog invasion. Some of the differences are one army comes from the north. That's Ezekiel 38 and 39. But at Armageddon, the nations come from different directions. They come from the north. They come from the south. They come from the east. They come from the west. And the army of the north comes to capture Israel's wealth. But the invasion that's spoken of in the prophecies that I just gave to you are to destroy the lamb and to destroy his people. Gog, the army of the north, leads the invasion. Antichrist leads the invasion of Armageddon. Armageddon isn't the final war in the Bible. The final confrontation occurs 
in what's known as the millennium, the thousand year reign of Jesus. In Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 9, it talks about that war. Dr. Herman Hoyt describes the dimensions of, of the battlefield. The battlefield will stretch from Megiddo to the north. That's Zechariah 12, 11, Revelation 16, 16. To Edom in the south, Isaiah chapter 34, verse 5. That's 1,600 furlongs. The battlefield is 200 miles long. It reaches from the Mediterranean Sea on the west to the hills of Moab on the east, 100 miles in length. It will include the Valley of Jehoshaphat, Joel 3.2. The plains of Ezralon. The center of the entire place will be Jerusalem. Some scholars have estimated that in that 100 by 200 mile stretch of land, 400 million people from the north, from the south, from the east, from the west are going to converge on this one place. And they're all going to die. And when they die. Again, if you're a mathematician and you do such things, average human being, how many pints of blood do they have in their body? Six pints. What is six pints times 400 million human beings? How many gallons of blood are we talking about? You're talking about a lot. Instead of using humans, imagine you could use grapes and you could just pop them. Pop, 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 pop. How many bottles of Welch's, how many gallons do you think you could produce? No wonder it's called the Great Wine Press. This is the place where Deborah and Barak defeated the Canaanites in Judges 4. This is the place where Gideon defeated the Midianites. This is the place where the Philistines defeated and killed Saul. This is the place where David defeated Goliath. This is the place where the Egyptian king killed Josiah. This is a place that's pregnant with history and judgment. J.D. Pentecost describes the battle. He writes in his book, Prophecy for Today, quote, Palestine is to be given a bloodbath of unprecedented proportions, which will flow from Armageddon at the north, Armageddon, down to the valley of Jehoshaphat or Jezreel. It'll cover the land of Edom, which is modern day Jordan. It will wash over Judea and the city of Jerusalem. John, the apostle, looks at the scene of carnage and describes it as blood flowing to the depths of a bridle of a horse's bridle. It is beyond human imagination to see a lake that size that's been drained from the veins of those who followed the purpose of Satan and tried to exterminate God's chosen people in order to prevent Jesus from. From returning, unquote. What will draw the people to this place? There's various reasons. Number one, and the most important one, in at least five different passages of Scripture, God draws them. Look again in your passage in, in Isaiah chapter 34, verse 2. For the indignation of the Lord is against all nations. And his fury is against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. In the old King James, it says he hath delivered them. To the slaughter. In Zechariah 14, too, it says, 
I will also gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. Zephaniah 3.18, for my determination is to gather the nations, to pour upon them my indignation, even my fierce wrath, it says in Zephaniah 3.8. In Revelation 16, it talks about Satan deceives them. It talks about unclean spirits that go out and fill the leaders of the nations led by Antichrist. And again, I don't have time to talk about the chronology, but there's going to be a future destruction of Jerusalem. In Zechariah 12, it says, behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to the surrounding nations when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. Assyria attempted to destroy Jerusalem and failed. Babylon attempted to destroy Jerusalem and succeeded. It was then subsequently rebuilt and then subsequently again destroyed by the Roman army. But the destruction that's talked about in the Bible is a destruction that doesn't meet the prophetic picture unless it's a future destruction. And so it says in Isaiah 34, verse 5, look at it says, for my sword shall be bathed in heaven. Indeed, it shall come down on Edom and on the people of my curse for judgment. By the way, Edom becomes the example that's pictured later in Isaiah 63. If you want to just turn there, we don't have a whole lot of time. But in Isaiah 63, verses 1 through 6, it says, Who is he who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This one who's glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red? And your garments like one who treads in the winepress? I've trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. For I've trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments. And I have stained all my robes for the day of vengeance is in my heart. You know the song? Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He has trampled out the grapes where the grapes of wrath are stored or something like that. That's this. That's the picture. It's the picture of the Messiah who's coming to right every wrong and to pronounce judgment. The people are cursed. They're doomed. They're totally destroyed. Look what it says in verse six. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is made overflowing with fatness, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Here is the picture. The the picture is just like people would take goats and sheep. They would take sacrifices and they would bring them during during the time of the sacrifice to the temple. By the time Jesus is on the planet Earth and he is a a full grown adult, literally tens of thousands of animals are being slaughtered on a moment by moment basis. And the valley of Kidron runs red with blood. Just like the lambs and the goats are sacrificed. Here's here's the picture. 
the people, the people who stand in opposition to God, who oppose God, who hate God and who hate the people of God. They're slain. And where is the sacrifice? Look what it says in Basra. Where is Basra? Basra is the ancient capital of Edom. Where is Edom? Well, it's in modern Jordan. But in the ancient world, if you have a map or if you, in your mind you can think about this, Edom was the land that ran from Amman, Jordan, all the way down to the tip of the Arabian Peninsula. So it's all of the country that you and I know as, uh, as Saudi Arabia. It's all of the country of Yemen. It's all of the country of Gutter. It's all of the country of Dubai. It's part of Iraq. And you know what the name Basra means? In the ancient language, it means the place where the grapes are gathered. And who are its descendants? Isaac had two children. One was named Jacob. And the other one was named Esau. Do you guys remember from your Bible history? Two boys, Esau and Jacob. And do you remember Esau loved lentils more than he loved his birthright? He was a carnal man and a selfish man. As a matter of fact, Paul writes in Romans chapter 9, verse 13, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Haven't you ever asked the question? Why did God love Jacob and why did he hate Esau? He hated Esau because he was carnal. He was concerned with sensual appetites. He was more concerned with food than with the bread of life. He was more concerned with himself than walking with the Lord. His grandfather was a man of faith. His father was a man of faith. He grew up in a religious home, but he didn't want to have anything to do with religion. He liked to hunt. He liked to watch football. No, they didn't have football. I'm just teasing. There was no football back in those days. And by the way, it's not necessarily carnal to like football. And it's certainly not carnal to like baseball. We know baseball is played in the future. It's mentioned in the Bible in the big inning. Basra is the ancient capital of the kingdom of Esau. And his offspring were called Edomites. And the province, when you fast forward into the time of Jesus, is known as Idumea. There was a king who was from Idumea. His name was Herod. And remember, Herod was king of the Jews when Jesus was born. And remember, he loved being king. 
And he felt threatened when the Messiah would come and when the Messiah was going to come, instead of saying, thank God, the prophecies have now come to us. The Messiah is here. He wanted to retain being king of his own kingdom and king of his own life. But guess what? Every person who wants to remain the king of their own heart and the king of of their own life, for all of those people who seek to substitute Jesus as Lord, they want to be king of their own life. And look what it says in verse seven. The wild oxen shall come down with them and the young bulls with the mighty bulls, their land shall be soaked with blood and their dust saturated with fatness. The domesticated animals, the wild animals like wild bulls, it becomes the wild oxen and the young bulls, I think, are types and pictures of the leaders, the strong leaders, those who stand in solid support and rebellion against the Lord. They stand in opposition. They, too, will be slain. The corpses are burning in the sand like bacon. They lose their fatty tissue and the human fat soaks into the sand. It's almost like the planet Earth is sucking them in like divine liposuction. If you've ever seen something this nasty, this raw, it's a horrible sight. The focus on Edom isn't just to single out Edom for judgment or rebellion, but they become a type and a picture of all of the nations that resist God. And then we see it clearly in verse eight, for it is the day of the Lord's vengeance. The year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Do you remember what it says in the book of Romans? It says. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. Remember, we as Christians aren't to seek vengeance. It's not our job to right every wrong. Guess whose job it is to right every wrong? It's God's job. And he will do it for it is the day of the Lord's vengeance. Look what it says. The year of recompense for the cause of Zion. What is the cause of Zion? Zion is Israel. Zion is Judah. Zion is the mountain of the Lord where the people of God come to worship the Lord. And so all of those people who opposed God, all of those people who hunted God's children, all of those people who persecuted God's children, all of those people who killed God's children, all of those people who succeeded in persecuting and killing them, are it's now going to come to a final and dramatic halt. It says in verses 9 and 10, it's strange shall be turned into pitch and its dust into brimstone. Its land shall become burning pitch. It shall not be quenched with night by night or day. Its smoke shall ascend forever and ever from generation to generation. It shall lie waste. No one shall pass through it forever and ever. And most scholars who read this verse thought that's an impossibility. Anyone who's ever put a coal in the fire, anyone who's ever put a log in a fire knows that it eventually burns out. But if either through natural or supernatural means. The country of Saudi Arabia is lit on fire. Do you think that there's enough oil reserves in Saudi Arabia to burn for a day? 
to burn for a week, to burn for a month, to burn for a year, to burn for a generation, to burn for a lifetime. To burn for several lifetimes, you realize that there are enough oil reserves in the Gulf Peninsula that the streams would be turned into pitch, the dust would be turned into brimstone, and the fire would burn day and night and night and day like Sodom and Gomorrah the land is destroyed and devastated the land is scorched and burned the water supplies are either completely destroyed or hopelessly polluted the land is ruined the land is desolate the land is uninhabitable now trust me right now Saudi Arabia is not a very nice place to live right at this very moment But people can live there in tents and palaces. There's enough money in Saudi Arabia to buy all of Coca-Cola and Pepsi Company and you can get your bottled water and bring it to Saudi Arabia. But there's going to come a time. There's going to come a time when Edom is going to be scorched and it's going to be burned. And look at the image that's given in verse 11. But the pelican and the porcupine shall possess it. Also the owl and the raven shall dwell in it. And he that is God, the Lord God, shall stretch out over it the line of confusion and the stone of emptiness. The word confusion and the word emptiness are very, very interesting. It's from an ancient Hebrew phrase. Tohu, ba, bohu, chaos, emptiness. It's the same expression that's used in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, where it says, you know, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, verse 2, and the earth was without form and void. Same words. Without form and void. The land becomes without form and void, uninhabitable, unrecognizable. It's only fit for the hardiest forms of of animals. And we're not even sure what animals are being spoken of. The translators have translated pelican and porcupine, owl and raven, but we, we sometimes lose sight of exactly what kinds of species these animals may or not be, may or may not be. It would appear that after the Battle of Armageddon, the world will be like that. It's going to be without form and void. It is going to be a nightmarish place in desperate need of recreation. And in verse 12, it says they shall call its nobles to the kingdom, but none shall be there and all its princes shall be nothing. Here's the idea. Not only is the country burned, the kingdom and its leaders are in total collapse. The government fails. The palaces are gone. The fortresses are gone. The cities are gone. The military defenses are gone. And the nation is overrun with wild animals. And it says in verse 13, and thorns shall come up in its palaces and nettles and brambles in its fortresses. It shall be a habitation for jackals, a courtyard for ostriches. The wild beasts of the desert shall also meet with the jackals and the wild goat shall bleat to its companions. Also, the night creature shall rest there. The word night creature is a very, very interesting word. It's the only appearance of this word in the Bible. 
It's the Hebrew word Lilith. And Lilith, according to ancient Jewish lore, was a female demon who came and devoured children. We don't know exactly what it means in this context, but it seems to have a demonic implication. Whatever this night creature is, it becomes a place of demonic occupation, if you will. There the arrow snake shall make her nest and lay eggs and hatch and gather them under her shadow. There also shall the hawks be gathered, every one with her mate. And then it says in verses 16 and 17, search from the book of the Lord and read. Not one of these shall fail. Not one shall lack her mate. For my mouth has commanded it and his spirit has gathered them. He has cast the lot for them and his hand has divided it among them with a measuring line. They shall possess it forever from generation to, to generation. They shall dwell in it. Isaiah draws special attention to something. Read it for yourself. Search from the book of the Lord and read. I've searched from the book of the Lord and read to you from the book of Zechariah, from the book of Joel, from the book of Revelation. Not one of these shall fail. Here's what he's saying. You think this is metaphor? You think this is hyperbole? You think this is trash talk from heaven? Not one of these shall fail. Not one shall lack her mate. It's his way of saying, uh, you are exaggerating about the snakes, right? You know, the, the, the him snake and the her snake. I mean, that's hyperbole. That's metaphor. Um, it, it, it really isn't as bad as you're making it out to be, is it? Yeah. Have you ever tried to describe something that was so horrible, so terrible, so painful, so wicked, so overwhelming, and you began to stumble over the words? I remember seeing a a visual image of of bulldozers taking tens of thousands of Jews who were killed in Nazi Germany and they were bulldozing the piles of people into an open pit. I remember watching a PBS special of Rwanda between the Hutus and the Tutsis as these two tribal groups massacred each other with millions dead with using only machetes, seeing children with part of their skull removed and part of their limbs hacked off and then pushed into rivers, their bloated bodies floating down the river, going over the side of a waterfall. The image is so terrible and so horrific that I remember saying to myself, how come nobody told me that this is happening? Imagine you're driving down the freeway and there's a sign, there's a warning that says there's a big pit on its way. It is a bottomless pit and at the bottom of the pit is hell. And if you drive into this bottomless pit, you're going to go to hell. Wouldn't you sort of wake up and go, hey, did you see that sign? I'm thinking I don't want to drive into that pit. 
when the Lord is issuing a warning, the end will come. And here's what it means. If it means anything, it has to mean the end will come. It cannot be stopped. The time of judgment is set. It is fixed. It is certain. The Lord declares it. Here, Isaiah commands. No, command isn't even the right word. Here, Isaiah demands that every single human being Read the warning of God in the book of the Lord. Search from the book of the Lord. Not a single detail is going to be left out. The birds, the animals, the snakes, they won't be missing their mate on that day of judgment. Here's what he's saying. Whether you like it or not, whether you believe it or not. All will happen Just as the Lord predicted it. The Lord himself has spoken the word concerning the day of judgment and his wrath executed by his Holy Spirit. God's spirit will carry out the orders. And look what it says. And his hand at the end has divided it among them with a measuring line. They shall possess it forever from generation to generation. They shall possess it. There doesn't seem to be much wiggle room. For allegory, for metaphor, for mythical interpretation. And look what it says in chapter 35. The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them. The desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The excellence of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellency of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful and and fearful hearted, be strong. Do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unveiled. Stop. The lame shall leap like a deer. The tongue of the of the dumb sing. The water shall burst forth in the wilderness streams in the desert. The parched ground shall become a pool. The thirsty land springs of water and the habitation of jackals where each lay. There will be grass with reeds and rushes. A highway shall be there, a road, and it shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for others. Whoever walks the road, although a fool shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast go up on it. It shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. The ransomed of the Lord will return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Judgment will come, but Messiah's kingdom will also come. The wilderness, it says, the wasteland shall be glad for them. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like a rose. Again, I was watching a special on, on I think, the animal planet. I'm not sure. There, there's this vast desert. I've been there in South America. It's called the Atacama Desert. The Atacama is on on the east side of a gigantic range called the Andes Mountains. And on the other side of the range, it's filled with salt basins and lava flows. It's 181,000 square kilometers of the driest terrain on the planet. There are places in this desert where it never rains. And when I say never, guess what I mean? Never. 
Never. There's never been any rain there ever. According to some scientists, the desert regions of the world are growing. Some speculate six to eight thousand square miles of desert are formed in Africa alone every year. So guess what the great need of the future is going to be? Water. But look what it says. The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It pictures a time when the desert regions of the world are gone. The land is restored. Now, remember, I was telling you that the earth is on a slight access tilt. Sometimes scientists suggest that if that tilt just simply went perpendicular, that there would be a uniform climatological environmental circumstance that during the time of the beginning, during the time of an Adam and Eve, the whole earth was a vast, gigantic garden paradise. The You know, you people worry about global warming. Guess what? When Messiah returns, the ice caps are going to melt. The earth is going to be set aright. Water is going to flow. And all of the deserts are going to be turned into gardens. And look what it says in verse 2. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice. Even with joy and singing, the glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The excellence... Of Carmel and Shalom, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellency of our God. It's so filled with so much riches. The glory of Lebanon, by the way, is a reference to these gigantic cedar forests. Carmel was known for gigantic oaks. Sharon was a rich, fertile pasture where you just put anything in there and it grows. And it says they shall see the glory of the of the Lord, the excellence of God. Here's the idea. Isaiah is envisioning a time when the real living and true Messiah has returned and he's living and ruling and reigning on the earth. That's what it's talking about. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellence of our God. The nations will witness the transformation. And in that day, they see the living Lord of heaven has returned to the earth. Look what it says in verse three. Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. You know how Isaiah gives people hope? He says this. Tell them Jesus is coming. Tell them that Messiah is on his way. Do you remember what Jesus said in his own ministry? The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted. Remember, John, in his desperate circumstances in prison, he said, are you really the Messiah or are we to look elsewhere? And he said, tell them that the blind have their sight returned and that the deaf hear and the lame leap for joy and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Jesus's earthly ministry was just a snapshot. It was a coming. It was a preview of coming attractions of a permanent and final kingdom. In every generation, the Lord has promised the weak and the fearful. He's promised them, believe in me, trust in me. Remember in the New Testament, look up because your redemption draws nigh. Remember in the book of Revelation, Maranatha, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. When they become weak, they can strengthen their weak hands and their feeble knees. And you know who the weak and the feeble are? The people with weak hands are the people who 
who can't finish the task. The people with feeble knees. These are the people who can't crawl even one more step. Their strength is gone. Their ability to go forward is gone. How do you give them hope? Tell them Jesus is coming. Tell them that help is on the way. And look what it says. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Once the transformation on earth takes place, the Messiah opens blind eyes and deaf ears. The lame leap like a deer. The tongue of the dumb sing. The waters burst forth from the wilderness and streams in the desert. Crippled believers leap for joy. Look what it says in verse 7. The parched ground becomes a pool. The thirsty land springs of water. The habitation of jackals where each lay. They will be grass and reed and rushes. It's interesting to me because the habitation of jackals. In the old King James it's, it says dragons. We don't know what that is. Scholars just said, can't be dragons. Dragons aren't real. I'm thinking that they're dinosaurs. Remember, you got to go to the Denver Museum or Chicago Museum or New York Museum. You see these amazing creatures. It's like Jurassic Park. And then all of a sudden, in, in God's kingdom, every animal that belongs in that kingdom, in its right circumstances and environment, you see every Thing that was only a pile of bones in the museum. Can I be sure about that? No. Is it wishful thinking on my part? Maybe. And look what it says. A highway shall be there in a road and it shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over, but it shall be for others. Whoever walks the road, although a fool won't go astray. Here's what's happening. The people in Jerusalem and Judea. Are surrounded by an army. They're barricaded in. They can't come and go as they please. But in Messiah's kingdom, the roads won't be blocked. The passages won't be blocked. As a matter of fact, in the ancient world, you had two kinds of roads, one for regular people and one for kings and priests. But in Messiah's kingdom... There will be a road where the redeemed walk. And look what it says. Whoever walks the road, although a fool shall not go astray. The idea being, even if you are the stupidest person in the whole wide world, even if you are like fully Forrest Gump on steroids, the highway will be so clear and so evident that you won't miss it. Do you remember a kid and you heard the song, follow the yellow brick road, follow the yellow brick road. How do I get from point A to point B? This is the yellow brick road. That's the direction. If you just stay on this road and go in that direction, you won't miss it. That's the idea. The redeemed walk there. The ransomed of the Lord. They sing and it's called the highway of holiness for good reason. Because it's the place where the redeemed are. Let the redeemed of the Lord. Who are the redeemed? These are the people who have been bought out of the marketplace of sin by God's Messiah, Jesus. 
By the way, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be on this road. You'll be in this kingdom. You will walk this path. You will be with Messiah. Oh, but I've got to stop. But I did both chapters. And look what it says. And the ransom of the Lord shall return in verse 10. And in verse 9. No lion shall be there. Not even the lion of your souls. Remember our, our enemy Satan is like a roaring lion. In this time, Satan is bound. Nor shall there be any ravenous beasts go up. There's nothing that will hurt you. It shall not be found there. But the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness. Think about it. That the highway of holiness... Leads to joy. You should meditate on that for just a moment. Obedience and holiness. Humility and holiness. What does holy mean? It just simply means separated unto the Lord. And look what it says. And sorrow. And sighing. Shall flee away. Wishful thinking. High in the sky and the sweet by and by. As certain as the promise of judgment is. That's how certain the promise of joy is. Even if your hands are so weak that you can't do one more thing. Even if your knees are so feeble that you can't crawl. You can't even crawl one more step in the direction of confidence and of hope. Remind yourself the King is coming. Messiah is on his way. Maranatha. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that you're going to right every wrong. We know that you're going to judge the wicked. And we know that you're going to reward the righteous. And Lord, we pray that we would be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of our own, but confidence and faith in Jesus, in Messiah, redeemed from the marketplace of sin, bought back and purchased by Jesus' own blood. Lord, we pray that we would walk in humility, but that we would also walk in hope, that we would walk in confidence knowing that we don't have to take vengeance. We can believe the statement, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. Lord, we know that you will right every wrong. You will repay every transgression and grievance. Lord, you will punish the sinner and you will reward the righteous. And again, Lord, we want our righteousness to be in Jesus. We want our reward to be Jesus. We're content with Jesus. We want Jesus as our portion and our future. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.